I'm on the ride of a lifetime. I'm on a ship that's sailing to uncharted shore, and I won't be coming back here. God and spirit and in truth. I'm Sean McCraney, your host, and our prayer tonight will be given by none other than Candace. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for bringing us here today to gather and worship in your name. Thank you for getting us here safely, and we ask that you come upon us to give us your blessing and help us to understand your word and to allow Sean to bring us your word in a way that we are able to understand it. And we ask this in your name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, my sister. Good to see you. It takes guts to pray uh, on this camera, and so we're grateful to people when they do it. It's not easy. Uh, remember, we've got a new book out that I personally believe is uh, one of the most important things that we have put together. It's called Knife to a Gunfight, Misinterpreting the Purpose and Place of the New Testament. And take a look at this. The spirit is the gunfight. The spirit is what we want to rely on in reaching people. And we don't want to use the word of God, though it is sharper than any two-edged sword, to stab and kill one another with. In my humble opinion, Knife to a Gunfight is one of the most important books that uh, we've produced in, uh, ever, and we hope you'll give it a chance. It's about misinterpreting the purpose and place of the Bible. It addresses the great things about the Word of God, uh, the book I spend my life in, love it. But this book goes into how we've taken this, the Word of God and we've used it as a knife and we've stabbed each other with it, and we've parted each other with it, instead of uniting with the content and letting it build us up in love and in the spirit. So consider getting it, hotm.tv, knife to a gunfight. Okay, two weeks from tonight, uh, May 17th, from 7 to 9 Mountain Time. That's a two-hour special. We're having a guest here in-house. He's the founder of CARM, Christian Apologist Research Ministries, uh, noted five-point Calvinist, Trinitarian, a guy who really knows the Scripture from, from those points of view. 
and he hosts a daily radio program that airs here in Idaho and Utah and is someone I consider a brother and a friend in the Lord. And uh, so Matt Slick is going to be with us and we're going to have a two-hour table talk and uh, discuss some things so that he can uh, try to clear up some things and uh, I can ask some things. And I think it's going to be entertaining. We're not here to kill each other. We're here to try to reason with one another and it'll be a time to talk and for you to call in with questions and or submit them through email. So feel free, prepare to join us online. Two hour special Tuesday, May 17th, 7 p.m. till 9 p.m. And with that, <laughs> go to our board of direction. <laughs> Oh, there we go. Our uh, director has been nipping at the cooking sherry tonight. Uh, we love her back there volunteering. Now, listen, uh, the question came to, I mean, this concept came to me, and it's part of our board of direction, and this is how it works. What's the best way to explain this concept called subjective Christianity? What's the best way to explain sub subjective Christianity? And I'm going to explain it to you through something that I think we're all familiar with. Rock, paper, scissors. We all know the game, otherwise known as Rochambeau. And let me kind of explain it this way. Rock represents the law written in stone. It's what Moses brought down from the mountain. Rock Break scissors, the spirit, but it is engulfed by paper, the word of God. I'll talk about that. It's the old covenant, old covenant approach to God. And I'm going to give uh, this the definition of Joseph Smith. Why do that? Why liken him to the rock? And because we're talking about legalisms. That's not how you spell it. We're talking about legalisms. We're talking about the law. For Mormons, it's temple rights. And it's priesthood. And it's every, everything that goes along with that, right? And there's in this. And there is religiosity, etc., right? Summarized. The LDS Rock says, we believe all mankind may be saved by obedience to the laws and ordinances of the gospel. We believe that all mankind by and through the atonement of Christ can be saved by and through obedience to the laws and ordinances of the gospel. There's the Rock, okay? The second thing is the paper and it is represented by the written Word of God. Now, love the written Word of God. It is something that we use. It's the New Testament approach. Not the Old. This is very much the Old Testament approach. This is the New Testament approach, the written Word of God. And it's also known, I'm going to call it in my life, the Chuck Smith. 
Chuck was a great, he passed away, uh, Christian, and he established a non-denominal uh, church, Calvary Chapel, which is now pretty much denominational. It is an attempt at objective religion. And that means what Chuck said is, listen, we can take the Word of God, the written Word of God, and we can objectively practice religion using its tenets, right? It's, um, it's the biblical ists and isms, Calvinism, Arminianism. It's the ists, that's the result of it, because when we start taking the written Word of God, it starts sending us everywhere and saying, well, I believe this and I believe that, and so it's caused division within the body. And that's part of what that book is about that we just wrote Knife to a Gunfight. It shouldn't be that way, all right? The end result is this is certain religiosity. This is factions and sectarianism. It, it causes us to say this branch is correct. This branch is better. We're doing it right, okay? Look at, we could define this. This is, we believe that all mankind may be saved by the obedience to the laws and ordinance of the gospel. We could say this is saying like, accepting our view of biblical interpretations mandatory for another person to be considered a saved Christian. There is a vetting process we put all believers under as a means to determine if they're legitimate in their faith. That's the result of the paper. Rock, paper, and then we come to the last one, which is the scissors, right? And I would say this represents the spirit. Why? Because the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, dividing between soul and spirit. And it does divide. When we read it, it does do that for us. The scissors are broken by the rock, meaning the law kills the spirit. When the rock gets involved, it crushes the scissors. They can't, it, the spirit can't do its job. But the scissors, the spirit cut right through the paper and tell us that love needs to triumph over all this stuff. And that's how the scissors are important. It's the spirit approach, the Holy Spirit governing. Okay, so we can say it's the Holy Spirit governing not the New Testament approach, not the Old Covenant approach, and I like it, liken it to smithereens. It takes all this stuff and says, we can look at any way we're going to look at it, but let's love each other. The scissors cut these things into smithereens. That's how I named it, all right? It's the subjective relationship with God through Christ. That's what we would name it here. And what does it do down here? It is absolute freedom in Christ to love. That's what it is. It doesn't lead to isms and is. It's not temple rites and priesthoods. It's not law. It's not paper. It's the sword of the Spirit. And here it is. This is how we would summarize it. This is how I would summarize subjective Christianity represented by the scissors. I would say that the Spirit is primary and preferential. I would say that the written word is secondary and referential. We refer to it to understand how we're being led, what we're being taught. But the spirit is primary and preferential. The word is secondary and referential. 
religious traditions are at best tertiary and deferential. We can defer to what's been done in the past, but it is definitely not our primary and secondary objective on how we live the Christian life. And finally, organized religious rule today is obsolete and inconsequential. Okay, so that's how I would decide uh, how to look at subjective Christianity. It's freedom in Christ to love. We've blown all the laws and rules to smithereens. It's led by the Spirit. The Spirit is primary preferential. The Word of God is secondary and referential. Uh, religious traditions are at best tertiary and, uh, uh, what did I say? Deferential. deferential. You guys are better at this than I am. And then organized religions are obsolete obsolete. We still use them, but they really are obsolete, and they're absolutely inconsequential. So there it is. Hope that blew your mind like it did mine. All right, let's get into our talk tonight. This is going to really, it's interesting stuff. This is part one of three. Part two will blow your mind as well, and that is we're going to talk about Satan. Now, we all get into discussions about Satan, and many of us, uh, we talk about Lucifer, and we talk about the things that the Bible says. We're going to get into all that next week, um, but if we've learned anything, if I've learned anything at least over the course of these past number of years, it's that God slowly has related topics to us over the course of biblical history. Um, in other words, many of the ideas that we have today and we maintain as absolutes uh, over time have morphed and changed as time has gone on. This is contrary to the LDS belief. The, the LDS teach that God gave the gospel of Jesus Christ and all the other things at the beginning with Adam and Eve and that the Bible uh, reveals a different story. And God reveals things step by step, slowly, through various revelations and makes himself and his mysteries known very slowly, okay? Listen to these passages. Paul said in Romans 16, 25, Now to him that is of power to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, which was kept secret since the world began. It was kept secret. The LDS say it's been known from the beginning. Paul says it's been kept secret. Jesus said to his disciples in Mark 4, 11, Unto you it is given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God, but unto them that are without... All these things are done in parables, meaning I'm going to keep them secret and hidden. Paul added in speaking of the gospel in Ephesians 3, 5, 6, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it is now revealed to his holy prophets and uh, apostles and prophets by the Spirit. And then in verse 9 it says, And to bring to light what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from eternity has been hidden in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ. Another evidence that it's all been hidden. It's been slowly revealed. Colossians 1.26 says, The mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but has now been revealed to his saints. For to them God would make known what are the riches of the glory of his mystery among the nations, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory by the Spirit. Again, another passage that says, This stuff has been hidden and slowly has been revealed. And finally, in 2 Corinthians 6, we read, but we speak of wisdom among those who are perfect, yet not the wisdom of this world, nor the rulers of this world that come to nothing. But we speak of the wisdom of God in a mystery, which God has hidden 
predetermined it before the world for our glory, which none of the rulers of this world knew. Did you read that line? Which none of the rulers of this world knew. For if they had known, they would have not crucified the Lord of glory. But it is written, eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor has entered to the heart of man the things which God has prepared to those who love him. But God has revealed them to us by his Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yea, the deep things of God. For who among men knows the things of a man except the Spirit of man within him? So also no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. And we know the Spirit of God wasn't sent really to man except to some prophets on the, until the day of Pentecost. So we know from these passages that, that the Spirit had to come in order to reveal these things to us, these mysteries, and it didn't come until Pentecost to every man. We're going to leave that passage off. It keeps going. You should read it. All these passages plus many more prove that God did not pour everything out on a table to Adam and say, all the prophets will know these things too, and then slowly they were lost. He has instead allowed us to have these things break forth to us slowly. We've noted that in the Old Testament, even the concept of God being a father can at best be seen as very scant. There's very little evidence for that. Maybe one passage, maybe two. The idea of God having a son, the word made flesh, is almost non-existent Old Testament. And then as, we, as late as last week, we have seen notions about the Holy Spirit being a person is in contradiction to for thousands of years, the Holy Spirit was seen as the Spirit of the Lord. Slowly, God has revealed different things to us. So, like it or not, or believe it or not, God has chosen in almost every area you can imagine to let bits of information out to human beings over the course of a thousand years and our ideas and notions of what he has shown us along the way have changed and been altered and shifted, sometimes in the wrong way because of our traditions and our interpretation. Christian apologists say that all of this information God has given us works in a cumulative effect to bring us to greater and greater understanding over the course of time, and I agree. But God has absolutely allowed for these truths to dawn upon humankind slowly and processionally and over long periods of time, and I would suggest, could be wrong, but that these insights are still dawning on us. We are still learning. It's not by a revelation. It's not new revelation. We're just coming to understand how to see the Word of God in new ways. And in, just like technology today is so varied and different and advanced to what it was 20, 50, 100 years ago, why? What's happened? Were they dumber back then? No, but we grow and we learn new ways to see things. And, you know... The orthodoxy in people's minds when it comes to religion says, no, we have had it right for 5,000, 2,000 years. We've had it right. There's no, but that's not true. We've seen God alter many, many things over the course of history as we've learned and grown. So got all that? So here we go. We find this principle more than true when we talk about the Satan. Now, remember that phrase, the Satan, for next week, okay? Our discussion is certainly going to cause people to <laughs> freak out a little bit because it's so intriguing. It's so interesting how this is morphed, but that okay because we just travel through and we just gonna, we're going to study it and see what happens. So let's start way back to the book of Genesis. All right, 
most Christians believe here we find the first mention of Satan. There in Genesis 1, chapter, th chapter 3, verse 1, we read, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, and he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden. Have you ever given this passage any thought? Ask yourselves right now, is that passage allegorical or is it literal? What do you think? Allegorical or literal? I'm going to ask Matt this question. So you answer it. If you go to a Mormon temple, you will see a film in their temple that reveals what is supposed to be the real story behind this passage. In the creation and Garden of Eden, the film shows a man who tempts Eve with a piece of indistinguishable fruit. It looks like a pomegranate apple piece of fruit. They purposely do something to it to make it so you can't like figure out what it is. This guy is always attractive and he's well-dressed and he almost always has a Shakespearean accent of some sort. It's really bizarre, okay? This representation shows that the LDS view Genesis 3-1 as allegorical. That the serpent mentioned is just a descriptive term for an actual human being, the fallen angel in Mormon nomenclature, Lucifer. Okay? So what about the Christian view? You guys have it in your minds. What do you think? Is it allegorical? Now, before I answer this, let me read a little bit from the Genesis account. Now, just listen to what it says. Now, the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he, he, asked the woman with a mouth and a tongue that could articulate words that Eve would understand, Yea, has God said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? The serpent asked Eve this. He or it also had ears that could understand human language and reasoning because we read, And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. So after Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit, God shows up and he asks Adam, how did you know you were naked, Adam? Because he was hiding and uh, he was wearing those fig leaves. And Adam said, the woman you gave me told me I was. And then in Genesis 3.13, we read, and the Lord uh, God said to the woman, what is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, the serpent beguiled me and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, so God now is talking to the serpent. Okay? Because you have done this, thou art cursed. Because you have done this, thou art cursed above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and the dust thou shalt eat all the days of that life. And I will put hatred between thee and the woman, and between thy seed. So the serpent had seed. Thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Now we read that. I've heard that story told so many times. I've seen it in the temple. I've, seen, I've read it as a Christian. It's got to be in the, in the several dozens of times, okay? Again, as Christians, I want to know, is this a real account, historical account? 
And we can read it and say, this is what it is, or is it allegorical? If you say it's allegorical, you face a whole bunch of issues, especially with biblical literalists. I mean, you're in deep trouble if you say it's allegorical. If you say that it, because if you say it's allegorical, you have to say, what else is allegorical in the Bible? And then it opens up to allegories run amok. How can you tell what's an allegory and how is not? You could take it down to Jesus. Is he an allegory for men sacrificing their lives for others? I mean, you could go on and on. And that's why literalists say no allegories. They're too dangerous, right? If you say it's not allegorical and that we have to take the word literally, uh, as many insist, we have to ask ourselves, was this an actual serpent? If so, what kind? A snake? If a snake, why did God curse the snake that it would, from that point out, go about on its belly? Don't snakes automatically go about on their belly? One of my daughters, I won't say which, thought when she read this, that the snakes before the fall actually walked about, walked, moved about like humans upright. <laughs> I think all my daughters thought that. And then how is it that this snake serpent was able to speak and respond reasonably to Eve? If it was Satan being referred to as the serpent, if it was Satan being referred to as the serpent, first of all, that's allegorical. But what's the deal with the belly crawling and eating dust all the days of its life? And if Satan was in the serpent, how come Moses doesn't say so? Instead, he just refers to it as the serpent. Part of the problem you might already be seeing is it's impossible to take the story entirely literally. There must be some allegory to the message or the message is entire allegor entirely allegorical. So there are some of the first issues with serpent in Genesis 3, but we're not done. Most Christians believe that the term serpent is either representational of Satan, which is the LDS view, it's just another name for him, or that God allowed Satan to speak through an actual snake. We view it this way because by tradition in English, the term serpent generally means a snake. The notion is so ingrained that it's really difficult to divert from an opinion. But there's this guy named Adam Clark, a Wesleyan, a respected Bible commentator, who lived between 1760 and 1832, who thought differently. I'm going to appeal to Adam Clark's thought because he's done a heck of a lot more research in this than I have. Many people read and enjoy Adam Clark's commentaries today because he really knew his stuff. Clark says the following about Genesis 3.1. We have here one of the most difficult as well as the most important narratives in the whole book of God. The last chapter, Genesis 2, ended with a short but striking account of the perfection and felicity of the first human beings. And this chapter opens with an account of their transgression, degradation, and ruin. In man, that man is in a fallen state, the history of the world, with that of the life and miseries of every human being, establishes beyond successful contradiction. But how and by what agency was this brought about? After stating that he has searched many accounts possible to understand this passage, he asks, Who was the serpent? 
Of what kind? In what way did he seduce the first happy pair? You've got to remember, it's the 1700s. These are questions which remain yet to be answered. The whole account is either a simple narrative of facts or it is an allegory. If it be historic, that means a narrative of fact, its literal meaning should be sought out. Let's find out what it means. If it be an allegory, no attempt should be made to explain it as it would require a direct revelation to ascertain the sense in which it should be understood for fanciful illustrations are endless. That's a great point, I think. So he goes on and he says, by a careful examination of the original text, I shall endeavor to fix the meaning and show the propriety and consistency of the Mosaic account of the fall of man. The chief difficulty in the account is found in the question, quote, who was the agent employed in the seduction of our first parents, end quote. Now, this is the question we've asked tonight. Mormons say it was Lucifer, a fallen angel dressed in robes and handsomely delivering Shakespearean rhetoric to sway Eve to partake. Some Christians say it was Satan. Others say it was a snake. But others say it was a snake that not only was filled with Satan, but one with an ability to chat and reason. A snake. The snake's mouth talking. Think. Adam Clark points out that there is a problem with this and says, quote, The word in the text which we, following the Septuagint, Greek translation of the Old Testament, translates serpent, is nakash. And according to Buxford and others, this word has three meaning in Scripture. One, it signifies to view or observe attentively, to divine or use enchantments. It's like a source of soothsaying or something like that. Second, it signifies brass, brazen, and is translated in our Bible not only brass, but chains, fetters, fetters of brass, and several places steel. He adds that in one place, it's actually translated as filthiness or fornication. And then third, it signifies a creature called a serpent, and he says, but of what kind is not determined. Regarding point number three, Clark says, in Job 26.13, the word serpent seems to mean whale or hippopotamus. So if we use Job 26.13, we could probably conclude that Adam was talking to, I mean Eve was talking to a whale or a hippopotamus. Satan in the whale of the hippopotamus? Possibly or possibly not. In Ecclesiastes 10.11, the creature is, of Nakash is described as a babbler. Okay? Uh, in Isaiah 27.1, a crocodile or leviathan, possibly an alligator, is meant by Nakash. And then he points out in Isaiah 65.25, the same creature that's mentioned in Genesis 3.1, and dust shall be the serpent's meat, referring to Moses' words probably. Dust shall be the food of this creature. And then in Amos 9.3, a crocodile is mentioned. Clark concludes, Hence it will be necessary to examine the root accurately to see if its ideal meaning will enable us to ascertain the animal intended in the text. Clark continues and says, From the Septuagint we can expect no light. He's saying it's not going to show us anything, nor indeed from any other of the ancient versions, which are all subsequent to the, in, from the uh, Septuagint. They've all been taken from that, so we're not going to get anything from that. He then explains that the Greek translators of the Septuagint use, use Nakash to describe a number of different things, 
So it's impossible to use that Greek translation to understand what animal, what serpent, what thing it was. He says, in all this uncertainty, it's natural for a serious inquirer after truth to look everywhere for information. Because the Arabic is so closely related to Hebrew, Clark decided to check it. And he says, quote, a root in this language, very nearly similar to that in the biblical text, seems to cast considerable light on the subject. And it's here that the Arabic equivalent to the Hebrew describes, get ready, you ready? You know what it describes? Any creature of the simia or of the ape genus. Now, when I read that, I was roaring with hysterics. I was dying, sitting in a public place, laughing out loud. Adam Clark, the great biblical commentator, through his studies, says the serpent, from everything he can see, was probably, he doesn't even say an ape, he says an orangutan. Interestingly enough, I know you guys think I'm going off. I'm just telling you. Clark adds, it is very remarkable also. From the same Arabic root comes kanas, which means the devil. We're talking the same words. Arabic kanas, it means ape. Kanas also means devil. And then the translated word into the Hebrew, it's very closely related. And Clark asks outright, he says, quote, is it not strange that the devil and the ape should have the same name derived from the same root, and that root is so very similar to the word in the Hebrew text. He continues and says, Now let us return and consider what is said of the creature in question. Now the Nakash was more subtle, more wise, cunning, prudent than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he summarizes, In this phrase we find, one, that whatever this Nakash was, he stood at the head of all inferior animals for wisdom and understanding. Two, that he walked erect, for this was necessarily implied in his punishment, that from that point forward of the sin, he would go on his belly, or on all fours. Three, that he was endowed with the gift of speech, for a conversation is here related between him and the woman. That he was also endowed with the gift of reason, for we find him reasoning and disputing with Eve. That these things were common to this creature, the woman no doubt having seen him walking upright, talking and reasoning, and therefore she shows no kind of surprise when she, he accosts her in the language related in the text. That makes sense. Clark points out at this point that had this creature, whatever it is, never been known to speak before, and suddenly Eve's cruising through and he's like, excuse me, <laughs> can we have a talk for a minute? <laughs> that Eve would have freaked out and ran away. But Clark says, in all probability, this creature had more intelligence and more everything else that as, it, as it, it was accustomed to talking, babbling, rambling, doing its tricks, doing whatever, and Eve and Adam were aware of it. That's why she had the conversation. Then he says, now I apprehend that none of these things can be spoken of the serpent of the species. Listen to what he says. 12 observances and we'll wrap it up. None of them ever did or can walk upright in terms of a serpent. That's his first point. So if we think it's a snake, come on. 
unless you believe, like my daughters did, that they cruised around on the tip of their tail. The very name serpent, this is good, comes from serpo, which means to creep. So it's built into the very name of a serpent that that's what it does. It was called a serpent before the curse. So therefore, in the English, it wasn't a snake always has been a snake because the word serpo means to crawl. Snakes have no ability organs for speech. Uh, Clark adds, they can only hiss. So when you think of an orangutan, you think of the ability to speak, you think of the tongue, the lips, the teeth, you have all the parts there, but a snake, how's a snake going to be able to communicate there unless Satan is able to talk through it? Keep thinking. He admits it's true that an ass in the, New Te in the Old Testament did speak by miraculous, but this was without, the, this what happened in the garden was not with any miraculous input from God. It talked. He says, nor can I find the serpentine genus be to be remarkable of intelligence of all other creatures. He says, if you compare monkeys with snakes, I'll tell you which one's smarter. Then he goes on and says, all these things considered, we are obliged to seek for some other word to designate the nakash in the text, which on every view on the subject appears to be insufficient and inapplicable. We have seen that the kanas, akanas, kunas, signify creatures of the ape or satirious kind. We have seen that the meaning of the root word, that he lay hid, seduced, slunk away, and that the kanas also means devil, as the inspirer of evil, the seducer from God and truth. Here we go. It therefore appears to me that the creature of the ape or orang-otang kind is here intended, and that Satan made use of this creature as the most proper instrument for the accomplishment of his murderous purposes against the soul of man. Such a creature answers to every part of the description in the text. It is evident from the structure of the limbs and their muscles that they had been originally designed to walk erect and that nothing less than a sovereign controlling power could put it down on all fours and force it to walk like that claw armed paws uh, for the rest of its existence. One Dr. Tyson, number 10, observed that the anatomy of the orangutan, that its seminal vessels that pass between two coats of the peritoneum to the scrotum is the exact same as it is in man. It's exactly the same. And this doctor says that means that they were meant to walk upright. But something happened in them where they were now bent over because that area was the upright part of a quadruped. No other quadruped in, in all of animal kingdom has this... Uh, uh, consistency to men except that except the monkey and and yet that it, even with that consistency for upright walking we show an animal that walks on all fours two more the subtlety cunning endless varied pranks and tricks of these creatures show them even now to be more subtle more intelligent than any other creature except man alone and being obliged to now walk on all fours they gather their food from the ground and are literally obliged to eat the dust, though exceedingly cunning. <laughs> That's part one. Part two next week. Let's open up the phone lines. 801-590-8413. 801-590-8413. We're going to show you a spot. We're going to come back to a whole bunch of stuff.
was laughing. Hey, uh, we've got uh, several things offline, but let's take Bert from Shingle Springs. Shingle Springs? There is a place. Says Derek, California. Bert, I hope you're healthy. What's going on? Bert. Bert. I can hear you. You got to turn down your computer. Bert? Hey, uh, <clears throat> oh, there you are. Bert. Uh, several things offline, but let's take Bert from Shingle Springs. He's got his computer on. He'll catch up in just a sec. <clears throat> Bert, you're on the air. You got to turn your computer down. Hello? Hey, you're on the air, Bert. Hello? You're on the air. Oh, is, is this uh, Sean then? Yeah, we're in a delay. Okay. Uh, hey, you know, I have to tell you, thank you for taking my call. I would like to tell you how much I enjoy your show and your personality. <laughs> when you talk about the Trinity, the Second Coming, the Total Reconciliation, the Nature of the Holy Spirit, I think you are right on. Praise I came God. to these same conclusions years ago. Wow. Yeah, really. Now, Sean, last week you made some comments on Isaiah 29.4, which refers to the familiar spirit. I don't have a question for you, but I'd like to make a few comments in regards to this verse. May I do that? Absolutely. All right. Now, you may or may not be familiar, and that's no pun intended, with some of the things I have discovered. For example, in other translations of the Bible, <clears throat> excuse me, a familiar spirit is translated as ghost, possibly referring to a demon imitating a departed soul. Now, there are two things I'd like to bring to your attention in this verse in Isaiah. One, the speech comes low out of the dust. And two, it shall whisper out of the dust. Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now, compare this to the visitation that King Saul paid to the witch of Endor, mm. a woman who had a familiar spirit. Mm. Supposedly, she brought up the spirit of Samuel, who ascended out of the earth, that is, out of the dust. Mm. And when Saul perceived it was Samuel, he stooped with his ear low to the ground so that he could hear him. Mm. That is, the familiar spirit, whisper. Now, interestingly, the same word for whisper in Hebrew, which is tzafaf, is also rendered as to peep and to mutter. And if you turn to Isaiah 8, 19, that is exactly what familiar spirits do when they're conjured up. They peep, mutter, or whisper. No wonder Joseph Smith possessed a peepstone, huh? Ooh. <clears throat> so it, it's not the written word of God that comes forth in the dust, as it is hinted in Second Nephi, but the voices of evil spirits. Another thing, Shaw, are you aware that the Book of Mormon apparently equates the familiar spirit with the Holy Spirit? Yeah, yeah. Oh, you are? Yeah, I was familiar with that. Okay, Second Nephi 26.13. I won't, I won't talk about it on the air then, but it does refer to the familiar spirit as he and him. The same personal pronouns used in the Gospel of John, which allegedly identifies the Holy Spirit as a personage. Now, I've got one more thing I'd like to tell you. I have copies of the Book of Mormon in both German and Spanish. And interestingly, the translation of 2 Nephi 26.16 is very damaging and embarrassing to the LDS interpretation. In the Book of Mormon, in German, familiar spirit is translated as Walsagegeist. That's a spirit of a soothed a fortune teller, oh. or one who divines. Wow. And in the Spanish Book of Mormon, it reads, será como uno que habla de entre los muertos. Literally translated, that says, and your voice shall be as one that speaks from amongst the dead. Wow. 
So I would say even the Book of Mormon is identifying the familiar spirit with spiritualism and necromancy. Wow. So well put, so articulate. I really appreciate you taking the time of sharing your, your knowledge with us, Bert. That's really important to our audience. Well, great. I would love to call you some other time, have some other points, but I know you have other callers. Well, not always. Uh, we don't have as many callers as we used to. But listen, I want to tell you, it's re I'm really grateful that you uh, would call and share that uh, many of the things that I will bring out, you have discovered a long time ago because people somehow seem to think I'm coming up with this stuff and I'm original in it. I'm not original. This stuff has been talked about and it's, it, it, I just don't, so I'm just glad to know that I'm in company, that there's someone else out there like you who has uh, come to these same conclusions, Bert. Well, absolutely. I mean, this is years ago I've written about it and, you know, I, from the Bible itself. So yeah. when you said that, I got really excited. <laughs> By the way, I just wonder how you come to change your mind on some of these points, like on the nature of the Holy Spirit or on um, uh, the second coming, or when, especially endless torment. Now, I was against that oh, 40 years ago. Now, I, I joined the Mormon Church because I thought oh. at uh, this, I was 20 years old, yeah. nine, 1958. I was in the Army Station, Alaska. And I thought, well, this is a great church. And uh, I never gained a testimony, but it, it was appealing. It tickled my ears because of the idea of the three degrees of glory, which, of course, is garbage. Mm. And, um, uh, but since then, I've come to the conclusion that dead wrong in so many things. Yeah. Okay? But now, having said that, uh, I would like to tell you, I've got to be honest with you. I grew up in a church in New York, where I came from, Brooklyn, New York. And um, we're born-again Christians. And I came to the altar, I can't tell you how many times I raised my hand, but I never experienced that born-again feeling. Mm. And I think, you probably, because I never really felt convicted of my sins. Mm. I never had that, um, what should I say, um, uh, the conviction. Yeah. You know, the uh, uh, broken heart and the contrite spirit. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I, searching for the truth, uh, let me down a blind alley. I have to tell you that. So I... I, I I wish I could say I agree with you 100%, but I, I differ with you on certain sure. points. Of course you do. And we will always differ. All of us will differ until we come to see uh, not through a glass darkly, but perfectly. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. that, I, I accept that. That's great. But I love the fact that, uh, that you, uh, you've shared with us and you've brought something to the table for us. And we're all searching and growing. And what you learned 40 years ago, we're coming into now. So it's a great thing, Bert. Thanks so much for watching. Hey, thank you so much. I really love you, Sean. You're great. Love you, too. Thanks I'm so much. Not. I'm a Nakash. <laughs> See you later, brother. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Uh, uh, the question is, what is your take on Mormon transhumanist association? And then we have the definition of transhumanism, uh, the belief or theory that the human race can evolve beyond its current physical and mental limitations, especially by means of science and technology. The idea that it's the Mormon Transhumanist Association, I have no thought on it whatsoever. In terms of uh, what is called the transhumanist group, I think it's, a, a, it's, it's obvious that we evolve beyond where we have been physically and mental limitations. Let me tell you just a simple ex explanation. The 50 freestyle time that I used to swim in college is now being done by girls. So right now we see that we have grown and we've learned and we've adapted and we've done things where people have uh, 
uh, evolved beyond their current status back in the 70s and 80s to where they are today. We're doing it in, in language and information. Why is this possible? Because we're made in God's image. And it's, it's not that science is doing it, and it's not that technology, is, technology assists, but we are doing it simply because uh, God, we were made in his image, and we are, are being blessed by him, in my complete, sincere estimation. What do I think of Christians in politics? I have no problem with Christians in politics. If God leads you to be uh, uh, involved in politics, that's great. Christians are involved in trash collecting, and they're involved in... Uh, horticulture and they're involved in medicine. I have a problem when Christians bring their Christianity to the uh, bully pulpit and they start using their Christianity as a rallying call uh, uh, in the name of Jesus for their politics. I have a very, very big problem with that because Jesus didn't even do that. You know, in the Roman Empire, he didn't even stand up politically. He just went along with what they did. He let them kill him. Yeah, he, he, his apostles didn't go out and preach against political things. He didn't care because his kingdom isn't, isn't of this world and a Christian's kingdom isn't of this world either. So I think Christians shouldn't use the name of Jesus in political arenas. And that includes uh, 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 Trump talking about two Corinthians, uh, any of that. I think it's just ridiculous when they all try to appeal. Look, at, I, I, would, I would prefer someone who just is honest about what they are and look at them politically, then try to bring in their religion. I mean, I, I think Hillary says she's a Methodist or something. Is it Methodist? I mean, where does it end? What does it all mean? It doesn't mean jack. So let's leave that out and let's just do what po politicians do and let Christians be what Christians are. I have got so many emails uh, here. I have a story about a woman at Brigham Young University, Maddie Barney, who uh, was raped and... Uh, she reported it to the Provo Police Department, who in turn took the report and gave it to the BYU uh, honor code officials, who now will not let her register for classes. Why? Because apparently the suspect, 39-year-old Nasuro Sidhu, lied to her about his, his age and name. He told her he was single when he was married, and I guess they were on some sort of date. So it wasn't like an attacker from out of the shadows. It was, it occurred in a date. And because of that, the BYU honor uh, police think she could have consented. Even though the police confirmed the details of her story by staging a phone call between her and her rapist when she filed the report and he admitted it. That she cried, no, no, no. And yet he raped her anyway. The whole point is she is standing against BYU Honor Code and she's saying, look, you won't let me register for classes because there's a potentiality that I consented to this. This is the problem when we legislate morality on the Christian campuses and all that. We're all sinners. Those people enforcing the Honor Code, they're sinful. The people who wrote the Honor Code are sinful. And the BYU police guys who are walking around in their uniforms are sinful. And they're taking a poor girl who's taken advantage by a guy who lied to her and proved over a phone call that she was raped and still they won't let her register for classes? I can't, it's just unbelievable what we do in the name of God. It's unbelievable. It's what gets me angry uh, with institutions uh, like that. And uh, here, did I look, I didn't look into that. I knew this was gonna come up. I asked last week about theonomy and how, if it, any, if it has any biblical 
uh, grounds. It's a movement of people wanting the Mosaic Law to be the basis for all nations' laws. You know what? It slipped my mind. I had to look up what the definition of theonomy was. Derek uh, looked it up and told me. And uh, really, uh, it's about dominion theology, and I know what that is. And that is a group of people who literally think that we are going to take over government. We're going to take over the world with moral mosaic living. And uh, I don't think there's any basis whatsoever at all in the writings of Paul, Peter, John, James, Jesus in his speaking that supports this at all. And I think it is a form of legalism and I think it, it, it denies the efficacy of the cross. And I think it is mixing religion uh, and trying to uh, establish a theocracy, which is what Mormonism did in this state at one time under Brigham Young and others. So I think it's a disaster, but I didn't specifically study it to figure out what theonomy is and how it works. That's just my general opinion. Finally, I'm not going to get to those emails. How much time do we have? Five minutes. I might be able to do this. In Mormon times, there is an article called Teaching Our Kids About Joseph Smith's Book of Mormon Translation, and it's written by a guy named Taylor Halverson, and he says, after church on the first Sunday of 2016, I was enjoying dinner with my wife Lisa and our two children, David and Rachel. As is typical around many dinner tables, we asked our kids, what did you learn at church today? Now, this is Mormon times. Our children respond to the, to the question, uh, and it sparked an important unplanned teaching moment about Joseph Smith who restored the Church of Jesus Christ to Latter-day Saints. I'm hopeful that because we taught our children at a young age the process God used with Joseph Smith to translate the Book of Mormon, our children will know Joseph Smith to be a prophet of God and the Book of Mormon to be the Word of God. So what he now does is he does a parent speaking and a kid's response to show others how to introduce to your children, young children, before they start really thinking, how the Book of Mormon was translated. Parents, what did you learn at church today? Kids, we learned that the Book of Mormon was translated by the gift and power of God. Parents, do you know what that means, kids? No. Parents, let's explain it. First question, we put Taylor's Hebrew Bible in front of the kids. How would you translate this book, the Hebrew Bible? The kids, we'd have to study and learn the foreign language, open the book, get a dictionary, and translate the words into English. Parents, right. Mom and Dad have both studied several languages. It was a lot of work. It took years sometimes to learn languages. After a lot of work and effort, we can translate things from foreign language into English with the help of dictionaries. Next question. We covered the Hebrew Bible with a cloth. Do you think dad can translate the Hebrew Bible? The kids, yes, if he took the cloth off the book and opened it. Parents, what if dad left the cloth on the book? Could dad translate it? Kids, no, because he wouldn't see what was inside the book. Parents, what if God helped dad see what was inside the book without opening the book? Could God do that? Kids, yes. Parents, but is that how dad or other scholars typically translate books by covering them with a cloth and asking God to reveal the content inside kids? No, parents, exactly. But this is how Joseph Smith translated. The Book of Mormon plates were typically covered with a cloth. Kids, so God helped him to know what was inside the book, parents? Yes. Now, was Joseph Smith a scholar? Did he know lots of foreign languages? Kids, no. 
How did Joseph Smith translate the Book of Mormon if he didn't know or understand the language it was written in? Kids, God helped him? Right. But how? We don't know. Remember when you said by the gift and power of God? Let's explain that. God gave Joseph Smith a special stone called a seer stone, as well as two other special stones called the Urim and Thummim. These stones would shine with the light showing the words of the Book of Mormon in English. Urim and Thummim meant light and truth in Hebrew, a perfect name for stones that shine the words light and truth. If you were trying to read words of light, what would you do? Maybe cover my head, the kids say, with a towel to block out the light so I could see the lighted words more easily. Parents, okay, back in Joseph Smith days, people wore hats. Kids, I could put the stone into a hat to more easily see the words of light. We do the same thing when we're trying to look at pictures on our smartphones outside in the sunlight. We try to create darkness around our phone with our hands or our baseball cap so we can see the picture. Parents, exactly. And the article goes on and on. Now, people who haven't been LDS, you want to know why we're so brain screwed? It's because we had stuff like that taught to us and we believe that this was normal and we bought into it and everyone was happy with it and we never stepped outside and said, let's think about this for a while. And I'm guilty of teaching my kids similar things because you want as parents your kids to have the truth because you want them to go to the celestial kingdom because you want to live with them forever. And it's such a diabolical thing. Some of these emails I have, I wish we could have got to them, uh, covered some of the stories people go through with that institution. And it's not just them, it's all of them. Brandon in Pittsburgh says, did you look into this? Oh, Brandon in Pittsburgh, line one. We have one minute, Brandon, go for it. You said I have one minute? You do. You know, the, the elders stopped coming to his house, and they quit having anything to do with him. And he didn't know what to do. So with me witnessing to him, he, he was interested in coming to church with me. And, and he said that he had seen Jesus in a way that he never did before. And I and I believe he got saved. I mean, he said he did. Well, I while I was working out of town not too long ago, I got news from my mom that he had got drunk one night, started drinking again, and he killed himself. And, um, look, I don't, I don't know where he went. That's not my place to say. But a lot of the people at the church, because I, I, I'm friends with a bunch of them, I say friends, and uh, they tried to blame me for being the one who helped him apostatize from leaving the truth Whoa. of the LDS church and, and going to a different church like mine. And hearing different and uh, I just wanted to ask you some advice 
to get some understanding on what they really mean by that and, and how they could be that way. I mean, I know it's, it's that mentality of individual holiness and all that, but, but it was a bad situation. I, I hope to see him again soon. And I thank you for all that you've done. I, I thank you for hearing my call and I, I love you to death. I'd do anything for you. Oh, Brandon, that's very nice. Listen, stay on the line just a second. We could go over. We're not on, on TV anymore. Uh, the LDS Church teaches its members, and its members believe, if they're active and faithful, that they are the only true church on the face of the earth, and nobody gets to go to God unless they have been faithful to the LDS laws and ordinances, tenets, rituals, policies, all that stuff. And so those people who have said that to you are under that impression, and they believe that probably from their heart. But let me tell you something. Uh, I, I am, you know, the man killed himself in all probability because of what the LDS did to him. Not because, oh, of, no. what, not because of what I, you did, because of what they did. Oh, no. It's every, every Mormon person, I say that, every Mormon person I'm friends with down there, say friends, uh, they depressed. I mean, they... Yeah. It's always, uh, they got a, a schoolmaster like the Old Testament said. They got that, that stuff hanging over their head all the time. And, and shoot, one thing led to another. He, he would turn to the church and get mad at me for witnessing. Yeah. And then they wouldn't, they wouldn't hear him. They wouldn't listen. They'd say that he had backslidden that, or that he wasn't living right. They'd say, well, you're depressed. If you want to get better, uh, do better on your church attendance and, and do better. He's like, well, Brandon, let me hear you out and see what you got to say. Wow. And, um, he, he used to be a bishop here. He said his dad wow. was the first bishop here in this town for the LDS church. And, and either way, he, I hated he was, I was out of town. I wasn't here to, to, to talk to him or anything. And, uh, and he did. He shot himself. Now listen, and Brandon, I, you shared the gospel with the guy. I the, did. The, the word of God does not return void. You, you right. brought him to church. You, you thought he was born again, and I believe completely he was. And so I see no reason why God wouldn't embrace him. You know, when we're born again, we're babes in Christ. We stumble all over things trying to kill ourselves as babes in Christ. So he, right. he, his, his physical life ended. But I would take great hope, and I would walk in great faith, that you showed him the light, and you took him to a place that was better. If he took his life, it's because of all the other stuff. And don't you ever let anybody tell you otherwise. Hey, I, I thank you. And one more thing, I've got a, a LDS friend of mine that just, he graduated with me, and he's at BYU, and I know he watches your show, and his name is Matthew. And um, that dude has dealt with depression for five years, yeah. and his dad was a bishop, and he didn't have him to turn to. So if Matthew's watching, I, I pray you get saved. And I, and I know my friend's name was Mr. Peterson that killed himself. Look, it, Samson killed himself. And it says he's in heaven now. There you go. You can't, you can't take the blood away, no matter how bad we try, no matter what we do. And uh, the moments of weakness, sometimes we, we do stuff that we regret. But I, I believe that God's grace even is for sins we were going to do, that we have done, and, and even the ones that we don't even know we're going to do yet. Absolutely. And, uh, I couldn't agree with you more, my brother. Praise God. Thanks for watching, Brandon. God bless you. Yes. We'll see you later. Okay, bye-bye. And we'll see you guys next week here on Heart of the Matter. I'm on the ride Going nowhere 
I am an existential cowboy on the wind And I won't be coming out, I'm going in This man's awake, a storm's arising The dawn's awaiting till a hundred monkeys know And I can feel the light-filled monkeys start